love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we got a half of one chapter and a whole other chapter to do. And today, we are going to take the first of two steps to go ahead and finish out. And actually, to finish out, we have to kind of finish what I'm going to call the epilogue of the fool's speech. So we've been doing the fool's speech for a number of weeks now. We took a break for Easter and whatnot. But we're going to do the epilogue of the fool's speech, just the end. It's not going to be the emphasis of this morning. Kind of repeat some of the things he had all already said in the fool's speech. And so we're going to cover that. And then we are going to go on to uh, the next section as he prepares for another visit. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 11, it says this. I have been a fool, right? The fool's speech. He talks about him being a fool. He continues this theme. Much of what we'll talk about in the epilogue here, the fool's speech has already been said. You forced me to do it, for I ought to have been commended by you. He says, you forced me to be a fool. Remember him comparing himself to the people that were the super apostles. He calls himself foolish for that. And then he says, but you all, Corinthians, forced me to do it. You ought to have been commending me. For I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I'm nothing. You forced me to be a fool. You forced me to compare myself to the super apostles. And I'm not inferior to them in any way. Then he also says I'm nothing. So if you're nothing and you're not inferior, what does that mean? Well, it could mean one of two things. One thing it could mean that the super apostles were nothing, possibly. Maybe that's a dig on them. But here's another way you might be able to possibly think about it that I'd argue. I have a niece and nephew that play chess. You ask me, are your niece and nephew good at chess? Well, can they beat most other kids their age at chess? Of course they can. A lot of kids that age don't even know how to play chess. Much less do they go do it for tournaments. But do you say, well, do they win every tournament that they enter? Well, no, I, I don't think so. I'm not, I'm not sure if they've ever won one. Do they win state? Do they win nationals? So in a sense, they're great at chess. They're like so much better than most kids. But maybe in another sense, they're not that good. Another way you might think of it is this, and of course I had to think of a basketball illustration, is is Ron Baker good at basketball? Is Ron Baker good at basketball? I mean, we probably shouldn't overthink it. Ron Baker, of course, we're here in WSU land, is good at basketball. He's been good at basketball for a long time. He's still good at basketball. But, but, if you would listen to people that only talk about the NBA, that only talk about professional basketball, and what it takes to play in the NBA. So Ron Baker was incredibly successful, right? Final four appearance, number one overall ranking at WSU, and made the greatest teams at WSU ever. He's good at basketball. But if you only talk about people that talk about the NBA, is Ron Baker good at basketball? Not so much. He may never play in the NBA again. So is there a sense in which Paul is nothing? Yes, compared to Christ, he's nothing. Compared to Christ, he's nothing. In the same way that you maybe compare Ron Baker to LeBron James, or you might compare my niece and nephew to the greatest chess championship of their age group. In that sense, nothing. But in another sense, is he just as good as the super apostles? Yes, of course, and we know all that he's done, all that he's sacrificed. He is greater than the so-called 
super apostles. It's kind of interesting how we live in that dichotomy, right? It's all who you compare yourself to. Compared to Christ, he's nothing, but compared to these people that have come, he is certainly something. And he goes on to talk the proof of that something. He says, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. Now, this is like a dative case in the instrumental use, and that doesn't mean much to you, but it's, it's like, I showed you this by the signs, by the wonders, by the miracles. How did I prove that I'm a true apostle? Well, by doing these particular signs, wonders, and mighty works. So to me, comparing him to just a regular person, he's great, right? He's done great. God has done great things through him. So in a sense, he's a great, great apostle. Now, the apostles, I would argue, are a special class of people that were unique to the era closest to Christ, or some people just say the first century. Uh, You could look at Ephesians 2.20 if you want to talk about that. If you want to get into a big debate on that, I'm not going to get into it. But most people would agree that the apostles were a first century group. Now, Acts 18 doesn't record any miracles while Paul was in Corinth, so we don't know what miracles he's specifically talking about that he performed here in Corinth. But we know that this particular phrase demand that there must have been a significant manifestation of miraculous activity. So what he did in Corinth to prove he was legit, was serious. For in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches? So, you know, how, how would you have been less than the other churches? How would I treat you more poorly than the other churches? Except that I myself did not burden you. What in, what in way did I treat you badly? I didn't even make you give me any money. Right? I didn't even, there was no, I didn't take any donations from you. And then he says, in the sweet irony and sarcasm, forgive me this wrong. Forgive me this wrong. Sense of mocking or being sarcastic, he says, I came to you, I cared for you so much, I didn't even ever ask for any money, and yet you still, you still seem to think there's something going on that's wrong. And this is kind of the finish up of the fool's speech. Most of what I've said here has already been covered in some form in the fool's speech. So we continue on to this next section. And the next se- section now changes to where he's going to talk more about money, but he's, being, he's really preparing himself to return to them to visit. Now, it seems that some people resented that Paul was self-supported. They resented that he was self-supported. This is the best story I can give that I can think of that, I, that made me think of this. I remember I was shopping for rings for Bethany when we were getting married, and I got to know one of the places I was shopping for rings, the owner of the store. He's a super great, nice guy. Apparently, he and I had nothing to do. So we talked for a long time, nothing to do with rings, talked back and forth. He was an older gentleman. He'd been in the ring business, the diamond business, a long time. And we chatted, and we chatted, and we chatted. And he, was, uh, he went to a church, and uh, he went to a particular church. And he said, he's apparently a well-off guy, he said, I make sure that our preacher gets paid as much as any other preacher in town. See, for him... It's like a status symbol, right? A status symbol. Our preacher gets paid as much as anybody else gets paid. And, you know, it's almost like a little brag to it, right? Like, 
Yeah, we, we make sure we take care of them. And for some reason, the people of Corinth thought when Paul was being self-supported, rather than looking at that as like this positive, he's being really great, they looked at it as some kind of negative. Like maybe, maybe supporting the people that came to minister them was robbing them of a status symbol that they wanted. Because the way things worked in Corinth often, and I've mentioned it before, is the parent, uh, the, the client relationship where the one pays the client, the patron-client relationship where the patron gives the client money and the client is subservient to the patron. And so by not taking money, guess what? Paul was uh, subservient to nobody. He could say what he wanted. He could do what he wanted. And so maybe the Corinthians were like, how dare he not take our money? How dare he not take our money? No, Paul was going against the cultural expectation that they had. And then we'll see as we go on that some are even accused Paul of stealing money through the back door, if you will. And we'll see that as we go forward. We go on to verse 14. Here for the third time, I'm ready to come to you. So he's preparing to visit, and I will not burden you. For I seek not what is yours, but you. So he's being specific here. When I'm coming to visit you, I'm not coming for your money, your things. I come for you. Wouldn't you? I would hate to be really rich and have everybody know it. Be really famous and have everybody know it. Wouldn't it be really hard to tell who your friends were? Be very hard to tell who your friends were tries to say, I'm not coming for your things, but for you. For children are not obliged to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. So rather than a patron-client relationship, how is he framing this relationship? Like a parent-child. Who's the boss of the parent-child relationship? Well, theoretically, it's supposed to be the parent, right? Whereas the way they were wanting it was... They wanted Paul to be the client and then be the patron. So they had the control. And he's framing it, no, I'm the parent and you're like the child. And he says, what about this relationship? For children are not obliged to save for the parents, but the parents for the children. So I am taking care of you by not charging you. You know, anytime any of you think your parents owe you money, some of maybe your parents have passed, but anytime you think your parents owe you money, just start doing some serious math on how much it costs to raise a kid and any money you think they owe you, you will find out and you will not have to finish the math project to find out they don't owe you anything. They don't owe you anything. And so in the same way, Paul says, you know, Parent sacrifices for their child. When you have a kid, you're not, I mean, maybe you're doing it for like, because you want to have a kid that loves you or something, but in general, it's mostly sacrifice. You have to take them places. You have to change their diaper. You have to feed them. You have to buy them this and buy them that, and then they want a better car, and then blah, 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 and then books and everything else, and they go to college, and then their car breaks down. You got to go, you know, I mean, it's like never ends, right? It's just, uh, here we go, here we go, here we go. You don't. So he says, I sacrifice for you like a parent would for a child. 
I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. He says, I will spend myself. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? He says, I am willing to be a parent to you rather than a client who gets money. Rather than taking something from you, I was willing to give to you. Should not there be like a little appreciation going on there? You know, most of us as teenagers or, or kids, we, we don't kind of realize all that our parents have done for us. And I'm sure there's a situation where there are bad parents out there, and I'm, I'm not talking about those. And maybe some of you have been in a situation where the, the parents weren't so good. But in a situation that hopefully is normal, which maybe it's not as normal as we like to think, but in a situation where the parent does care for the child, for some reason, us as children, we just don't see it sometimes, do we? We just don't realize all that our parents have done for us. And so the Corinthians do not realize all that Paul has done for them. In the same way Christ has suffered for us, Paul has suffered for them. But granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. So apparently, we've got a couple different accusations. One is that it seems like they're you're robbing of this patron-client relationship. And the other is, oh, no, you're saying you're not getting any money from us. Wink, wink, wink. But you're actually getting money from us from another way. Isn't this interesting? If one accusation's enough, not enough, why not go with two? You know, so often accusations go like this. You don't find any evidence that anything was done wrong. You find an area that no one knows about, and you just insert the accusation right into that area no one knows about, and say, maybe something's going on there. Maybe some, do you know, you know what's going on there? No, you don't. I don't know what's going on there either. You, you know what's going on? You know. Well, since none of us know what's going on, I, I think maybe we should just kind of assume something bad's going on, don't you think? Right? Sometimes we literally see ignorance as, a, as some sort of opportunity or excuse to put exaggeration. Is there evidence that Paul did this? Well, we're not going to, there's no evidence. But as long as we kind of don't know, or we're not 100% sure, we can make the accusation. And then you can get out of it. If it's proven that you're wrong when you made this terrible accusation, you know what you get to do? Oh, well, I was just, I was just asking. I mean, maybe I was slandering their character while I was at it, but, you know, I'm just going to claim I was just asking. Just asking. Seventeen, did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent to you? So it seems like what maybe they're saying is he took from the collection of someone else and so maybe he didn't take the money directly. He was using other people that he'd sent. And through them, if, if the Corinthians gave them money that maybe they were giving to him or, or whatever. I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Paul defends himself. He says, did Titus take advantage of you? 
Titus had been to Corinth on at least two prior occasions, and apparently was a very trusted leader. As a matter of fact, they probably knew Titus better than they knew Paul at this point. He'd been there more. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Didn't I treat you the same way Titus did? Did we not take the same steps? So as he starts thinking through the evidence and start just bringing it out of this black cloud there, there's no truth to this accusation. You've been thinking all along that we've been defending ourselves to you. So as we, we've been thinking all, have you been thinking all along? All along, I think, means this whole letter. Have you been thinking this entire letter I've written to you that we've been defending ourselves to you? Do you think the whole point of this letter was to defend myself? It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. Now, does Paul defend himself? Of course. He does defend. I mean, we, we've gone through the letter together. Does he not defend himself? Of course, absolutely he does. But while he's defending himself, he provides theological backbone for what he's arguing. And this type of reasoning, the theology behind it, often connecting back to the gospel, is to help uplift, to upbuild them. When he talks about the new covenant ministry, when he appeals to the completion of the collection, he admonishes the Corinthians for accepting false prophets. He admonishes the Corinthians for, continu for continuing in immorality. When he does each of these things, he's not just defending himself. He's teaching them things that they should know and follow long after he's gone or no longer a part or no longer there. So his ultimate reason isn't to defend himself even though he does. The ultimate reason is upbuilding, which I'm not sure I knew was a word until I read it this week, upbuilding. The death and resurrection of Christ is not only salvific, it also carries over into Paul's experience. We see in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding. Ultimately, the way he wants to upbuild them is through speaking in Christ. You know, God rescued Paul from death. We saw in chapter 1, he rescued Paul from persecution. He rescued Paul from the unremoved thorn. And he empowers Paul to discipline the Corinthians. You know, oftentimes throughout the letter, the death of Christ is like analogous to our suffering. We have something bad that happens in our life, some difficulty. It's like the death. It's analogous. It's an analogy. But then the resurrection is always the analogy of the deliverance. These things that happened to Paul, the difficulty that came, was he delivered? Yes, he was. From different times of things. Physical death, which of course no one gets delivered from that forever. Another For persecution, which would be emotional and physical. The thorn, which is just a physical health problem. The disciplining of the Corinthians, this is all like an emotional struggle. 
right? It's not a physical thing. He had all these issues, all these difficult, all these challenges, just the same way Christ went through the challenge of dying and the same way Christ has the power to overcome death. Christ has the power to overcome the difficulties that Paul had in his life. In the same way, in our lives, Christ has the power to overcome difficulties in our life. Of course, the number one difficulty we need to overcome that all of us need to make the choice of is to get saved, right? To put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. But did it end there for Paul? Is that the only way in which this relationship with Christ, the power of the gospel, affected his life? No. It affected him in the physical struggles that he had, the relationship issues that he had. It helped him in every step of his life. And we, as we go through our life, the power of the gospel isn't just the one-time event when we decide to put our faith and trust in Christ. It affects our lives on an ongoing basis in the same way that it did for Paul. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we just thank you so much for this message this morning as we think about the gospel and what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross and, and the, the pain, the suffering that he went through, so much greater than likely anything we will have to go through. Not only the physical pain, but the, the pain of being separated from you. So, so much more challenging anything we'll face, and he had the power to overcome. Lord, I just pray that we also might realize we have access to that power to overcome the difficulty in our lives. Lord, we love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.